All right, well, there's no place like home, and uh, it's wonderful to be able to say I've discovered that again in the last couple of weeks, so it's great to be back. Uh, At the beginning of the summer, if you were with us, then you know that we did something a little bit unusual, maybe sounding, at least, um, for a Christian church. We, We set out on a course to study the Republic of Plato over the course of six weeks. And if you missed it, you missed the explanation for that. Maybe you're thinking, wow, that is kind of weird. I mean, you know, I could understand putting out a class on the Bible, but Plato, I don't really understand. Tom, could you explain? I'd be happy to, at least in part. Let me give you a couple of the reasons why we did that. We did that, first of all, because if you want to understand the world in which you live, okay, well, Plato is just really helpful because the reality is that the world in which we live as part of Western civilization, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 2014, has in large part been formed and shaped and even birthed out of This great book, the great conversation that has resulted in our civilization, as we know and enjoy it today, has been said to be merely a footnote to the Republic of Plato. So it's kind of an important book for that reason. But beyond that, the world into which Jesus was born, the world into which the apostles were born, the world into which and to which the apostles wrote was formed and birthed and shaped by this great book. And what you realize as you study that great book and the far greater book, which is the New Testament, and I'm not putting them on the same level, please don't hear that, but what you realize is that John is self-consciously interacting with Plato and Paul is self-consciously interacting with Plato. They're interacting with these ideas. It's really quite interesting. And beyond that, if you took the class or if you've studied it otherwise, then you know that Plato imagines and then describes with alarming clarity the perfectly just man. Now stop for a second. Who is that? Because we're followers of him. We know who he is. We've witnessed him in the New Testament and we've witnessed him by his spirit at work in us, in our families, in this community. It's Christ, but 500 years before Jesus is even born, Plato imagines and describes with great clarity the perfectly just man and the perfectly just city. And then we come to the New Testament, and we read about the city of God, the one that will descend from heaven. Now, what is that city? Who really is that city? Because the city is not bricks and mortar. You know, we drive down I-95, and we come alongside Miami, and we see the city on the horizon. We go, there's the city. Okay, well, if you're going to do that with this particular city, the biblical city, then take a look around and say, there's the city, because the city is made up of living stones. It's people. It's the city that will, in the end, perfectly reflect the soul of the perfectly just man into whose image we are being made. Think about that. But you know what else Plato does in that book? It's astounding. He says, let me tell you what would happen to the perfectly just man if the perfectly just man ever was found to exist in this world. And he lays out abuse upon abuse upon abuse upon abuse upon abuse, and then he ends the sentence with, and they will crucify him. Think about that. It's interesting to me, at least, that none other than St. Augustine himself, one of the church's single greatest theologians, claimed that it was Plato who led him to faith in Jesus. That is to say, Plato created for him a longing for the perfectly just man, the perfectly just king, and the perfectly just place, the perfectly just people, the perfectly just city. And then he got to the New Testament, the inspired word of the living God, and he realized... That's Jesus. Oh, and 
they crucified him. It's quite striking. Finally, if you took a Plato class, then you know that Plato was also incredibly helpful to understanding the human soul, how it's constructed, how it works, how it interacts, its strengths, its weaknesses, all of that stuff. It's helpful to you to understand you and to understand the person you're married to and to understand your kids. It's like the the foundation in many ways of psychology in some sense. And not just the human soul, but then also the various types of government that as you look all over the world, you see all over the world. He describes them all in detail in advance. He says, here are all the different forms of government. Here's their strengths, their weaknesses, and all of that stuff. And why is that? Because they're expressions of the soul of man. And then he tells us, and this is where I'm going. He says, no matter what kind of government you have, it falls into one of two categories. It's either a good regime or, please don't miss this word, an evil regime. He speaks in terms of good and evil, of absolutes. He discerns that by means of reason. And he tells us the difference between the two. He says, look, the difference between a good regime and a bad regime, no matter what kind of government it is that you have, is who it is that the leaders govern for. It is either the selflessness or the selfishness of the governors of that particular government. So, for example, if it's a good regime, then those who are in leadership govern for the benefit of the people, and indeed they disadvantage themselves to advantage the people. But those, okay, in the evil regimes, well, they govern for the advantage of themselves, to the disadvantage of the people, not for the people's benefit, but to benefit themselves and their friends and their family members and their business acquaintances, etc., etc., etc. And I realize we could go off on a long tangent here. But let me say this, I think that that relates very nicely to the other study that we've been doing this year, which is a biblical study of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And I say that because as we've gotten into this study, we've realized that there's studies not just about King Saul and the nation of Israel in his day, or King David and the nation of Israel in his day, but rather it is about King Jesus. We have a monarch, guys. It's not a democracy. And me. And King Jesus and you. And here's what we'll see again today As we return to that study, we'll see that the regime of Jesus is a good regime. Indeed, there is no greater regime, for there is no greater leader or more selfless leader than he. Our king is the all-selfless and sacrificial king who reigns and rules for his benefit, yes, or for his glory, yes, but for every one of our benefits, really, And who has already, as we know, because we've studied that New Testament, laid down absolutely everything necessary, including his own life, to win every battle that you and I ever have faced or ever will face. The biblical king is a king that brings salvation. And in the end, from absolutely everything. And so then I hope as well, we'll see today before we're done that the really the most reasonable, the only reasonable response to that is for you and I to take the battles that we're facing and to say, hey, you know what? I've got a king. I'm a citizen of his kingdom. His role is to save and to fight for me. And all the way through the Bible, do you know what he says? He says, the battle is the Lord's, 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 the battle is the Lord's. Now, why does he say that so very many times? Because I need to hear it again and again and again and again. The reasonable response is for us to take our battles and to say, okay, here, you take them. And that doesn't mean that we won't have to fight.
It means that when we fight, we fight in faith knowing that the victory that is, in fact, and will be ours in the end, be it in this life or in the next, guys, is found solely in Him. So we pick up our study today in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, where we read the word then. Now, what does that mean? It means that stuff has happened before we get to this story. Okay, what's happened most recently? Well, generally speaking, most recently, King Saul, who, as you'll recall, governed over the entire nation of Israel, has died. And David has been anointed to be king, but not yet over the whole nation, just over the tribe of Judah, the most powerful tribe in the southern half of the nation of Israel and the tribe into which David and his very influential family come from. So Saul's dead... And David is king, but only over Judah, until we get to this story. For we read that then, meaning after all of that, all of the other tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, which was located in Judah, and which is where David had set up his headquarters. And now notice what they said to David, because it's very carefully chosen language. They come to him, and they said to him, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Now, why is that significant? Because that language comes to us out of the first couple of pages of the Bible, and it comes to us out of the very first wedding. It's marital language. And they knew that. That's why they chose it. And David knew that when he heard it. So when they come to David, here's what they're saying. They're saying, David, you are a suitable husband for Israel, and we, well, are your suitable bride, at least if you'll have us. And the reason that's significant is because when you go to the Bible and you study the duty of husbands in the Scriptures, what is the duty of a husband primarily toward his bride? It is that of a self-sacrificing love that exists for her benefit. And what is the duty of the wife? I know that it's controversial, and we don't have time to discuss it right now. But what is the duty? It is that of respect. It is that of submission. It is that of obedience. Am I winning a lot of fans? to the self-sacrificing, loving leadership of the husband. Now, I want you to think about that in terms of your relationship to Jesus for a minute. Because it's not just a story about David. It's not just a story about the elders and the people of Israel. It's a story about me and you and him. Okay, here's the deal. When you fast forward to the New Testament, what do you discover? You discover that one of the primary metaphors by which the Spirit has chosen to communicate to us what our relationship to Jesus is, is that of husband and wife. It's this exact same kind of marital language. And you discover there in Christ a very selfless husband. A sacrificial love that has gone so far for your benefit and mine as to lay down His infinitely, perfectly righteous life, the truly innocent one suffering and dying for you, for me. He's laid down everything that we need to win. Indeed, every battle in the end is already won, whether we enjoy that in this life or in the next. But the victory is found solely in him. And so then again, it's kind of like, well, all right, I mean, if that's the case, and I've got that king, and he's my husband, and he's my king, there's really no one else like him, is there? So here, Lord, take it. It's your battle, and I'm going to entrust it to you. I'm going to let you govern over it. I'm going to let you strategize for it. I'm going to let you lead it. I'm going to let you empower it. Tell me what's my next step. The battle is the Lord's. 
So I give it to you, and that doesn't mean I don't fight. It doesn't mean I don't get wounded. It doesn't mean maybe even in this life that I don't die. But it means that that when I fight, I fight in faith, knowing that my victory is sure and secure in him. So then, meaning after the death of Saul and the anointing of David, but only over Judah, all of the other tribes of Israel come to David at Hebron and they say, behold, we are your bone and flesh. David, you're our suitable husband. We are your suitable bride if you'll have us. And then they give reasons why. Two of them. So here's the first one. They say, in times past. Now, you've got to stop and go, all right, what direction are they looking? Because it's certainly not forward at this point. And it's not present. Presently, they're dealing with him. They're looking back and they're saying, okay, in times past. In times past what? Well, we're going to see here in a second. In times past, David has manifested his self-sacrificing love toward them, specifically, by the way, in the way that he risked his life to rescue them in battle after battle after battle After battle, they say, look, in times past, even when Saul was king over us as the idea, it was still you, David, who, and it's a term of art, led out and brought in, that's militarily is the idea, Israel, they're saying, listen, David, it was still you who battle by battle and skirmish by skirmish went out there and risked your life to save us to rescue us from those that would otherwise have destroyed us. And so the elders of Israel come to David and they say, listen, in light of the salvation that you've already brought to us, it's obvious that you are the suitable husband for us, that you should be our king. And not only that, but then they give reason number two. They go on and they say, the Lord said to you, David, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel, which is to say that they recognize that none other than God himself has chosen and anointed David to be their husband, to be their king. And so then we read that all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and they did what for David? They did for David what you and I ought to do for Christ. They took him as their husband. They anointed him as their king. And again, not just over some small part of Israel. They didn't come to David and say, hey, listen, you're king of Judah, be happy. We're good with that. You can have Judah. They come to David and they give him every square inch. It's a powerful thought. So I'm working through this. I'm thinking to myself, okay, like since January, if you've been with us, we've been talking about the fact that when Jesus Christ comes to us, and I think it's important that we own this, he doesn't come to us as a politician. He's not handing us pamphlets and hoping we'll vote for him hey, please elect me and I'll mostly leave you alone and I'll govern according to your wishes. I will do what you and your limited wisdom think is in your best interest because I'm hoping to get your vote again in four more years. It's not what we're dealing with. Now, it's what we're used to, which makes what we're really dealing with more difficult to get our arms around, isn't it? We're not used to a sovereign king, and yet that's how he comes. He comes as an all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, all-selfless, all-sacrificial, all-powerful, everywhere, all-the-time present king who, far from leaving us alone, claims every square inch of our lives and who then governs over our lives sovereignly in ways that confuse the heck out of us at times. Because in his greater wisdom, he knows that these are ways that even if we cannot imagine it, are actually in our best eternal interests. It's astounding, isn't it? 
So then let me ask you, have you done for Jesus, I mean really done for Jesus, what the elders of Israel do here for David? Because as you look back upon his person, upon his life, upon his teachings, upon his sufferings, the innocent for the guilty, the guilty being me and you, upon his death, laid down for you and I. And as you look back as well upon his empty cross, or upon his empty tomb, rather, in which none other than God himself raised Christ from the dead, that he might reign and rule as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, and not just over me, and not just over you, but in the end, over absolutely everything and everyone else as well. For we're told that in the end, willingly or unwillingly, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As you consider him, I would ask you, who would make a better king and ruler of your life than that? So the elders of Israel get it right with David. And so then we read in verse 3 that all the elders of Israel came to David at Hebron. And King David then made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, in which he no doubt pledged his selfless sacrificial love. And they in turn anointed David king over all of Israel, by which they in turn pledged their respect and submission and obedience to their husband and king. And then look what the king does. It says, then the king and his men, who now sought to establish a centrally located brand new capital city for the nation of Israel that David has now been anointed as the king over the whole of, did what? They went to Jerusalem... Well, that sounds a little odd to us. And they went against the Jebusites in Jerusalem, which is even more odd. And now we learn that the the Jebusites were, in fact, the inhabitants of the land, meaning of the land of Jerusalem. Now, why do I keep saying that that's odd? Because Jerusalem is located dead center in the middle of the nation of Israel, and it's located also inside the geographical boundaries of the Israeli tribe of Benjamin. And Saul, the first king of Israel, for example, hailed from the tribe of Benjamin, where his capital city was. And yet we're reading that the Jebusites controlled the city. And in fact, as you go back into the Bible, you realize that the Jebusites have always controlled the city. Dead center in the middle of the nation of Israel, these guys have been unassailable. Not even Joshua took this city. That's astounding. And the Jebusites know it. Israelite leader against Israelite leader, Israelite army after Israelite army have crashed and burned on the walls of this town. And so look what they say to David. They said to David, you will not come in here. And then they mock him with this particular mock. And the language is really curious. But the blind and the lame, they say, will ward you off. They're saying, listen, even the weakest citizens among us can defend us against you in this fortress, in this place, in this walled off city. And they say that thinking, as we're now told, David cannot come in here. That's been the lesson of history for them. And yet David is different. David does what no one else can do. We're told, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, meaning the strongest and the most fortified part of the city, that is the city of David, which is, by the way, what he named it after he took it. And notice what his battle plan was. David, before he took the city, said on that day of battle, here's the plan, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him do what? Let him get up the water shaft 
to attack, and he takes up their taunt, the lame and the blind, who are hated, he says, by David's soul. And you read that and think, man, what, what's up with that? You know, I mean, first of all, what's up with the water shaft? Like, what is that and why do they even need it? Well, they need it to get water, and the reason for that is pretty simple. The city is a fortified city on a hill, so they're way up here. Unfortunately for them, their water source is the Gihon Spring. It's, it's way down here in the valley. And that's just fine as long as they're living at peace with their adversaries because, you know, hey, you need water, you can go outside the gates of the city and no problem, get your water, come back in. But when your city is surrounded by your enemies and you're under a siege, you're under attack, okay, you can't do that. And water equals what? If you don't get it for long enough, you die. Water equals life. To be thirsting to death and to drink in the Bible is to be revived. And so it is in life as well. So the cure for that, the fix is, that they literally drilled a tunnel down into the hill that the city was set upon, down to an elevation a little bit lower than the spring, and then they drilled a mostly horizontal shaft going a little bit on an incline over to the spring so that the spring water could then flow down to the base of the vertical shaft. And during times of war, like what we're reading about here, they could literally descend down into the earth and then come up out of the earth bearing the image of life, which they could then distribute to anybody who needed it. Now, the problem with that is that David grew up in Bethlehem about three miles away. And he knew where the spring was, and he knew about the shafts. And so he did what nobody was expecting. Obviously, they were stunned by this. He sent his guys through the water tunnels. And they came up out of the earth, not bringing life, but bringing death into who? Because he said his soul hates them, to the lame and the blind. Now, what does that mean? Did David hate lame and blind people? No. Later on in the story of his life, he will welcome a lame man to his table. It's not the point. It's the metaphor that he's using for these Jebusite people who stand against him. But it's interesting language because when you come again to the New Testament and you read about the king that the whole of the Bible is actually about, including this part, you read that he comes to the same city of Jerusalem and that the same city of Jerusalem is walled up against him, but in a different kind of way. They stand against Christ and they stand against his gospel of free grace, of a salvation that is found by faith alone and grace alone and, and in him alone. And how does he take the city? Because he does. And it's not by sending his soldiers. He had no soldiers. Through the water tunnels, though it involves water, and it certainly isn't by hating or killing the lame and the blind. Instead, it's by healing them. In John chapter 5, we read the story about Jesus, and he's in the city of Jerusalem, guys. And he heals a man who has been lame in that city for 38 years by the waters of the pool of Bethesda. And then four chapters later in John 9, Jesus again is in the city of Jerusalem. And he heals a man who was born blind in that city. These are known people is the idea. And he puts mud over his eyes. Do you remember that story? It's kind of odd, really. And he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And he says, wash in the waters of the pool. The waters of the pool. Waters in the lame and the blind. 
And how is he rewarded in the end by that city? Because Plato told us 500 years before Jesus was even born what they would do to him. It's abuse upon 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 abuse. Oh yeah, and they crucified him. And then what did he do? Well, he very unexpectedly came forth from the ground. Not bringing death, but bringing the living water of his spirit and the eternal life of his gospel. And by that, he took that city. And by that, he can take our city. For he offers these things freely to all who will come to him to receive it. It's really pretty cool when you think about it like that. Jesus is the greater David. And his is a far, far greater and more unique victory. And yet, as I thought about that, notwithstanding the uniqueness of that victory, I mean, nobody but David defeated that city, at least no one prior to David. No Israelite, at least. But has anyone prior to or since Jesus defeated death? I mean, like, what's your short list on that one? It's a startling victory over sin and death. And yet, what do we do with our battles? We keep them to ourselves. You know, we live as if we think, well, you know what, Lord, I think that you can deliver me from sin and death, but I don't think you can fix, you know, my marriage. I I think you can deliver me from sin and death, but I don't know that you can cure me of this addiction. I think you can deliver me from sin and death, but not, you know, from fill in the blank. What is it? What is it that as you look at your life, you're holding tightly in your hands because you really don't believe that Jesus is the cure? That in Him is your victory. And yet the battle is the Lord's. 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 The battle battle is the Lord's. And again, that doesn't mean that we won't have to fight. It doesn't mean that we won't get bloody. It doesn't mean in some cases and in some places that we won't actually die. But our king transcends life and death. You get that, do you not? He's the one who lived and died and yet lives again. And not just him, but those who find their place in his kingdom. It doesn't mean you won't have to fight. And it doesn't mean, incidentally, either that he will fix things or cure things or deliver us exactly when we want him to or even exactly how we want him to because he's not a politician. He's not coming for our vote. He's not trying to say, you know what, let me, let me do it exactly your way because I really want you to vote for me again in two or three or four years. He's coming to us as our sovereign king who has laid down his life for us and who, unlike us, is all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, all-selfless, all-sacrificial, who sees from the beginning and the end and declares the end from the beginning. All of history, all of time, everything, and all at once and perfectly. And he's saying, let me tell you what your best interest is. You're not going to like this now. It's like medicine. It doesn't taste good. No, I don't want to take it. This is what's best for you. Now walk with me in this. Fight with me in this. I've given you my spirit. I've given you my word. I've given you my people. 
Guys, the only proper response to the reality of who Jesus is and of what Jesus has done and what he has promised and will yet do and what will stop him exactly from that is to say, you know what, Lord? This is the battle I've got. Here. Here. You guide me. You fill me. You surround me with your people. And together we fight. And no matter how it ends in this life, I live and die knowing that in you it ends well. It ends in victory. For he's already laid down everything, even his own life, to secure my victory and yours over everything in the end. And he takes all things and uses them for our benefit, in fact, for our good. And that, if you did your personal worship this week, is kind of what happens next with David. You know, David takes the city of Jerusalem, and next in the narrative, what happens? The Philistines hear that the whole of Israel is united now under the singular leadership of David, and they gather together all of the exact same overwhelmingly powerful forces that seven years earlier had literally killed Saul and wiped out Israel, decimated them. And they come now to do battle against David, and what does David do? He respectfully, submissively, and obediently says, Lord... The battle is yours? Okay, here. What's my next step? And he fights. And he wins. So let me close today by asking you a couple of questions. One, is Jesus Christ really and truly your king? Really and truly. Like not, you know, he's got Judah and you're happy, but No, you've woken up to the fact that actually, you know, Lord, I think that the whole of me would go a whole lot better. (laughs) Like, who better to be king than you? Every square inch. And then what battle or battles do you need to give him? You've got your hands around him and your fingers tightly clenched in it because you're afraid he's not going to do it your way. (laughs) Isn't that true? Is that just me? I guess it's just me. No, Lord, I don't really trust you to do this as quickly as I want it over with, so I'm going to deal with it. Oh, Lord, I don't trust you to bring about the kind of conclusion that I want, so I'll bring it about it on my own, and, and so forth. Kind of silly, isn't it? It's tough to do. But you have a husband and a king in Christ. And you know what? The battle is his. So is Jesus your king? Really? And what is the battle you need to give him? All right, I'm going to pray for all of us today, um, but not just us. Uh, I'm going to pray also for our Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching the news or reading the commentaries or looking at the photographs. I typically just take in a little bit of news a day. You know, today we have the ability technologically to bring into the midst of our soul absolutely every evil thing that's happening in the world and all at the same time in 24 hours a day. And I just find that that's not good for me. And I think it's probably not good for you. I don't think it's good for us to ignore it on the one hand, but I certainly don't think it's good for us to drink it 24 hours a day as though, you know, we cannot put it down and it's some kind of addiction. But I forced myself, because that's what it took, to look at this stuff yesterday. Um, If you've missed it, 
there are Christians who are having their children systematically beheaded. Uh, they're taking the heads of, uh, of these Christian people and some of these kids and putting them on stakes on display. Uh, they're taking the wives and the daughters of these families and raping and killing them. Uh, they are taking the men. Uh, they are shooting them and pushing them into ditches and mowing them over with dirt. They are hanging them and they are crucifying them. Uh, they have fled and many of them are starving for food. And for water, it is a desperate, ugly, bare, naked look into the wickedness of humanity. And maybe you're thinking that your problem just got a little smaller, but where's the victory in that? Because I think we had better have an answer for that one, don't you? And it is a denial of our faith and of our king to say that the sufferings and indignities that these people are enduring and until they come to an end will endure, will not end in victory for them. Our king promises that there will be a day of justice. He's the perfectly just man. And there will be a day of justice for the evildoers there and... For all evildoers, really. And we all qualify, don't we? If we don't come to the one who absorbs our evil into his own soul and who lays down his life for us on a cross and bears the punishment of it for us. Justice is coming and it will be meted out for every person either in Christ or outside of him. It will be swift. And it will be perfect. But not just a day of justice, a day of reward for the people of God. For those who have found their place as citizens of the King, who have repented of their wickedness and sin, and given it to Him, who have been rescued by His great salvation, filled with His Spirit, and who live and who suffer and even who die, if necessary, for Him, for His sake for His cause, for His gospel. There's a day of reward coming for us as well. And it is a day of victory. A day in which the reward, and it's hard to imagine, but then again the Bible comes and says, it's going to be so great you can't even imagine it. A greater mind has imagined it. In which the reward will be so great that we will look upon the battles and the struggles and the sufferings that we and they have experienced in this life and praise God for them. So, I want to pray for those people and encourage you to do the same and do anything else you can to help them. I think we ought to be looking to do that as well. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank You um, for our King. Lord, we praise You that He is not a politician, for we have been subjected to the ineptitudes of that. We know it's oppression. We thank You that it's not us who reigns and rules either, for we have been subjected to our own ineptitudes. 
and brought upon ourselves oppressions. We thank you that there is one to whom we can run for salvation from our sin, for deliverance from death, for eternal life itself, and for victory in absolutely everything. I pray, God, that this day you would give us faith, Lord, truly to receive you as our husband, to anoint you as our king, and to learn what it means to respect and submit and to live in obedience to you, no matter what that may be. God, take our battles, for they are yours. Do this for your glory. And Lord, we lift up the suffering in Iraq, our brothers and sisters who God are suffering the most horrific of things. And we pray for their faith. We pray for a supernatural faith that sustains them no matter what comes their way. We pray for deliverance, God, in this life and in the next, in Christ. We pray for whatever needs to happen in this life and in this world to bring this suffering to an end. But no matter what happens or doesn't happen, Lord, we commit them to you. It's the best possible thing we can do. And we thank you for their commitment to you, which speaks volumes to everyone all over the world who is watching. There is a Savior whose value is greater than life and greater than death. And there is a Savior in which we are delivered in life and death and who makes all things right in the end. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.